0: This chapter, in 2 Samuel, is very similar to the book of Job. Because in Job, God humbles him greatly, disciplines him, so that he can bless him in the end. And in this chapter, God keeps David and the whole nation humble, keeps them from departing from him. And he does this in order to bless them in the end. And so this is written for our benefit so that we can know that God is working in our lives to make us humble, that the first and the greatest blessing is humility, because every other blessing of God comes out of that. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I'm going to read here, Second Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say go number Israel and Judah so the king said to Joab the commander of the army who was with him now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people and Joab said to the king Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the number of the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in a which is on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead, and to the land of Tadim-Hadshi. They came to Dan-Yon, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, They came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now, this first part of the chapter shows that God is in charge of our lives. We think, well, how did you get that? And the answer is notice that God is behind what goes on here. And he's angry because of the whole nation of Israel. It's not just David. Did you notice he's angry at the entire nation? David is just one aspect of that. So what in the world moves God to be angry? Is he just having a tough day? He hasn't had his coffee yet? Does he just flip out because somebody left the toilet seat up? What does God get angry at? The answer is sin especially the tendency of God's people to trust in something else than God to meet their needs that's called idolatry now David as part of the nation of Israel he wants to indulge himself in pride Here and again doesn't say that but Why he wants to number Israel he wants to know how strong they are he wants to know how Prosperous they are he's using a measure a standard That is pretty natural to use if if you're good at your job then you should have some statistics to measure that by, so that you know, you see this? I'm in the 98th percentile. That means I'm doing a good job. And you can say, what a great guy I am. Because I'm doing a fabulous job. Do you see this statistic right here? It says I'm doing great. So David wants to be able to say, What a great king I am, ruling in the fear of God, creating a wonderful environment for people to prosper and grow and really develop because I'm doing things right. I'm a good king. Now, I think this is what all of Israel is thinking. What a great nation we are. We're great at farming, we got prosperous harvests, and we fight our enemies and we win. I mean, look at us, we're doing great. So David is just one instance of the whole pride of Israel. Now, what makes God angry? is that it's not because israel are such good farmers and it's not because they're such great warriors that their nation is prosperous and developing and peaceful it's because of israel's relationship with god and everything they are and all that they have comes directly from him So for Israel to go around patting themselves on the back and saying, wow, I should be on the cover of Farmer Monthly, you know, for for sheep production of the year, or whatever, God goes, because that's not true. See, when people do that, they are ignoring God and they're going after the blessings directly and that is idolatry you know you don't have to have a little statue that you bow towards and all to be an idolater all you got to do is value the creation over the Creator So, we're so far advanced in the West that we don't have statues, we have motor vehicles. With those exalted names, Tesla, the god of electric speed. You know what I'm talking about. So, it's, it's just hipper, cooler idolatry. But it is idolatry. Now, this is especially offensive when it concerns Israel because God created Israel specifically to testify to his own goodness. See, and everything about Israel is because there is a God. And instead of testifying that God is good, they're testifying that we are great farmers. We are great warriors. Now. Something that. Balaam said. Not even one of Israel's prophets. But this is in numbers 23 verse 22 here's what he says about israel god brings them out of egypt he is for them like the horns of the wild ox for there is no omen against jacob nor is there any divination against israel at the proper time it shall be said to jacob and to israel what god has done and that is the secret to the jews that's the secret of the nation of israel is that god is for them like the horns of the wild ox in the old testament horns are a symbol of power why is israel powerful even to this day Israel is powerful. Why is Israel powerful? Because they have nuclear weapons? No, because God saves them on a regular basis. I get this one book in my library, The War of Atonement. The 1973 war. And you know, Israel should have lost that war. They were overconfident. They ignored the signs that clearly showed that their enemies were about to attack them because they thought, nah, they're not gonna do that. Did I get that right? Yom Kippur. So instead, it was a mess and yet, you gotta read the book. It's unbelievable the kind of things that God was doing to save Israel. And Israel walked away from that one, going, we shouldn't have won this one, but we did. Even to this day, God is to Israel like the horns of the wild ox. It's his power keeping them. And see, Israel exists so that anybody can look at them and say, what God has done? If anybody is to be cognizant of that, it's to be Israel. But Israel is beginning to lose the plot here. Does everybody see that? This is not good. And, you know, we just read that section in Deuteronomy chapter 8. That he says, In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made for me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. See, this is Moses writing this before they even go into the land. And he says, you know, God is going to bless you, and it comes from him. You cannot forget this stuff. You're going to get pounded. And Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. This is where David and the entire nation of Israel is at right now. This is not good. So God and his anger... Is the one who incites David to act. Can you imagine that? Now, this is why you got to read the whole Bible. Because a parallel passage in First Chronicles chapter 21 says this. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people. Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and bring me word that I may know their number. Okay, so now it's saying that this is something Satan is doing. Satan is working on David. David says, go number the people. So which is it? Well, it's just like the book of Job. That is... Satan is the one who says, have you noticed, Job? Or God says, have you noticed, Job? Satan says, well, you're protecting him. I can't do anything to him. But if you let me have him, he'll curse you to your face. God says, okay. You can have Adam now. Satan had to demand permission. It wasn't open season. Nothing could happen to Job until God allowed it. Now, you can read the entire book of Job and realize that God disciplined him severely, but he did not give him over to death. Because there's something that Job could only learn through suffering. And that's it. You can't go to school for this? You can't read it in a book. You have to go through it. And God allowed the devil to afflict Job in order to bless him in the end. And that's the exact same situation here. Here's David wanting to know, how good a king am I? I want to know. God says, okay, we're going to nip this one in the bud. So he says, okay, you can have him, Satan. Satan says, fine with me. Goes out and incites David. But see, just like in Job, God is not going to destroy David. He's going to discipline him severely and humble him to bless him in the end. Now, you notice that Joab resists this command, says, don't do this. Why do you want to do this? And all the commanders of the army resist and say, please don't do this. And the reason for this is that one of the things you don't do in life is number Israel. Now, it doesn't say it clearly in the Bible, but there's this theme running through the Old Testament that you do not count Israel. Now, part of this is in the promise to Abraham that's in Genesis 13. God says, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Well, you can't number the dust of the earth, so you can't number Israel. That's part of it. But not only this, David is not counting Israel according to Scripture. In Exodus 30, it says the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is twenty giras. Half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. That's about five point seven grams of silver. That's not very much at all. That's a very small amount. But everyone is supposed to give that. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. When you give the contribution of the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel And she'll give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. you notice the emphasis on atonement there and redemption? And especially when you consider silver is the metal that symbolizes redemption. And you notice that every person counted is worth 5.7 grams of silver. Even the rich people who could afford to pay more. But this is not about leveling out society. This is about redemption. And everybody has to know that they're worth this much before God. Even the rich guys, even the poor guys have to contribute just that much that is who you are before God and yet you are redeemed and again this is the emphasis of the counting is that every person realize who they are before God not I am a CEO I drive a Tesla I'm hot stuff wait a minute that's next to my Aston Martin Actually, I have about 15 cars, but anyway, who am I before God? 5.7 grams of silver. Everybody is supposed to understand this. But you know, David is completely ignoring this. And we're going to see that it ends in plague. Every single person is in need of redemption before God. And yet this aspect is totally ignored here. Now, you notice that David gets his way by abusing the authority given to him by God. Here's his commander, Joab, saying, please don't do this. And he goes, well, be quiet. And all the commanders of the army say, you know what, sire? We don't think this is a good idea. And you know, David has this thing like, I am God. I am king by the grace of God. I can do anything I want to do. Did you hear my voice? They'll go, yes, sir. And they have to do it. Now, one indication that this is sin is that David cannot be reasoned with and lust cannot be reasoned with. I'm not talking only of sexual lust, I'm talking about what in the New Testament is the Greek word epithumia. And it just means desire. There's lust of the flesh, but there's also the lust of the eyes. And there's this strong desire for whatever. Now, you know, you can have this strong desire for God. That's good. But when you have this strong desire for something else and you can't be reasoned with. That's when it becomes sin. And you know, lust does not have a conscience. You can know in your mind this is wrong, but you don't care because you want it. And that's where David's at right here. He's fixed on what I want because I am king. Now go out there and get it. I don't want to hear another word out of you. OK. Now, you notice this census goes on for nine months. Verse 8, nine months and 20 days. And all that time, no lightning bolt from heaven, no earthquake, nothing goes wrong. And you could think, see, everything's fine. We're okay here. But see, that's not true. That's not true. All it is is temporary. And there's a time when sin gives birth to death. So verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man." So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So... Here's David at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab comes to him and says, here's how many. Now, in that parallel spot in Second or First Chronicles, there's a different number. And there also you will read that Joab disobeyed David anyway. He left out a couple of tribes because he thought, this is so dumb. So he just left out some tribes. Remember, Joab is out for himself, so he, he can disobey David anytime he wants. You know. But David gets it. He goes, I have this money, people. And then it says his conscience strikes him. Isn't that interesting? Now, you can suppress your conscience and you can wound it you can burn it, but then it's still there. And you get that message, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong. You have sinned. And not only that, greatly, greatly, he says, I've been foolish. Can you imagine all of that realization just crashing in on him? what he has done. And it takes all the joy out of it. There's no joy in sin. There is no joy in sin. You can glut yourself, you can do anything you want, but at the end, there's no joy in it. And he can't even indulge his pride on being a good king. Because good kings Don't disobey God, regardless of how good they are. And see, it's awful to get that thing you wanted, and there's no joy in it because you didn't get it in the right way. And he prays for forgiveness, and God will forgive him. Does everybody get that? It's a foolish sin, it's a huge sin, but God will forgive him. And then he disciplines him. And he sends the prophet Gad with three choices. Now, this is where it fits because David chose to sin against God. And God says, okay, now you can choose your consequence. God could give seven years of famine. This is a long time of lack and of not having enough to live on. And it means death. Now, God is the one who gives good harvests. And he's saying, okay, you guys go ahead and farm without me. And we'll see how far you get, since you guys are such great farmers. You can congratulate yourself for the next seven years now. What's going to happen when God doesn't give a good harvest? Or what happens when God doesn't give victory for three months? He says, you'll be running from your enemies. And that means that no matter how hard you try, you're going to lose. And your enemies can do anything they want to you and you're going to be running because god will not give you victory now or god could give three days of pestilence you know just because you think it happens automatically you don't have to stay healthy that's not an accident that's not It's supposed to be this way God is the one who keeps you and God doesn't have to do that he says okay you're on your own now and if he relaxes his care for you you cannot keep yourself alive and the point is that you take all these things for granted and you think yourself capable insufficient for life but all these things come from God God says I don't have to give them just like Daniel told Belshazzar the king you knew everything that God did with your father Nebuchadnezzar and you you chose to despise God And he says, But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. So, you know, apart from God, you are powerless, you are helpless, you are insufficient. And God says to David, Now you're going to experience that. And David says, I can't choose. Let God choose. Because he's merciful. that's a great, great thing to say. Just don't let me fall into the hand of man. Because that's worse. I'll take anything from God. And God sends this plague. And 70,000 people die in three days. And you know, David is just, he's having a hard time. Because he's watching this, and he's realizing, I did this. This is me. And that's hard, isn't it? To see your sin affect other people. And he says, what have they done? But see, he doesn't know. He does not know what we know, that the entire nation is caught up in this pride. And you know what? God knows about those 70,000. He knows about everybody. It reminds me of the time when Jesus is saying to people, he says, what about those people that Herod mingled their blood with their sacrifices? Do you think they're any worse sinners than anybody else in Israel? Or how about that tower in Siloam that fell on those people and killed them? You think they were worse sinners than anybody else in Israel? He says, unless you repent, you will die also. God knows everybody's sin. And nobody is innocent before God. But God also knows when he has achieved his purpose. Can you imagine? Here's this angel about to destroy Jerusalem. And God says, stop, we're done. Isn't that amazing? He says, we're done. We have achieved what we wanted to do here. Now, as a father in heaven, God knows exactly what it will take to humble us. And he will do it right up until that point. And he says, you know what? You're done. I think this is amazing because this is what God is doing. He's humbling David and all of Israel. Nobody at this point is saying what a fabulous country we are. Everybody has a family where they're, they've lost somebody and they're just saying, God, please have mercy on us. Please have mercy on us. Please hear our prayer. And God says, okay, we're done. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana came out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here oxen for the burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So, it's interesting where the angel stops, by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Remember that a threshing floor is where you put your harvested food, your, your grain that needs to be threshed, and you hitch up your oxen to yoke, chain them around a the center pole. It's on top of the hill, and you run the oxen around in a circle, and the spikes on the wheels behind them breaks up the wheat and it separates the chaff from the wheat the chaff is the outer part that has no nutritive value it's it you got to get rid of it you can't grind it in with the wheat so your oxen just kind of go around and around and they're breaking up the chaff and separating it from the wheat and then you, You take a pitchfork and you throw that up in the air. And see, because you're on top of a hill, you catch a breeze. And the breeze blows the chaff because it's lighter than the wheat. The grain falls back vertically. And the chaff gets blown off this way because it's light. Everybody with me? You didn't think today was gonna be a class in harvesting but you got to understand that you can't have a threshing floor for example like Gideon did in a wine press which is in the ground because you don't get very far very frustrating and hot and sweaty I would think you got to have it on top of a hill so this is where the angel is on top of a hill and I guess Arana is threshing And he's an interesting guy, right? One, because he's a Jebusite. That used to be the name of Jerusalem. Jebus. And Canaanites lived there. Which they weren't supposed to. Because Israel was supposed to get rid of all the Canaanites. So David took over Jebus. And renamed it Jerusalem. So Arana... Can you imagine a Jebusite still living in Jerusalem? I don't get what he's doing there, but he is a Gentile. It's a mystery. But he's a great Gentile. See, Israel was supposed to get rid of the Gentiles because God says, you're going to learn their ways, and their ways will destroy you. But evidently, Arana, the Gentile, learned Israel's ways. That's pretty interesting. Do you notice he's completely submissive to David? In fact, when you look at the parallel spot in First Chronicles, David sees the angel, so does Arana. Now, what would you do if you saw, you know, a 72-foot angel <laughs> with a sword drawn about to destroy you? Would that freak you out it says that all four of his sons ran but arana kind of doesn't take any mind of an angel about to destroy the city but here comes david the king and arana bows down with his face to the ground so he has respect and honor for david the king isn't that amazing He could see the angel just like David could. And he's completely submissive to David. Anything you want, you can have it. David says, I want to buy your threshing floor. Arana says, I give it to you. You don't have to deal and trade with me. We'll find a price somewhere in there and see if I can really, you know, make a killing on this real estate deal. He says, have it all. Have my oxen for the burnt offering. Burn their yokes. There's lumber here. You can have it all. Can you imagine that at the drop of a hat? You just give it all away? Woo-hoo. But see, it's for David. Something about Arana. He is a fabulous guy. He's humble and submissive. Does everybody get that? Now, David says, no, I want to buy it from you. And you notice why I won't give burnt offerings to the Lord. that don't cost me anything. You know why that is? If it doesn't mean anything to me, it's not going to mean anything to him either. You husbands. Don't give your wife something you found in the street as a gift. Here, babe, I found this in a dumpster. It's for you. What's she going to say? Thanks. You really think highly of me. Didn't cost anything. If If it doesn't mean anything to you, why should it mean anything to her? Do you get that? So look at this. When you give to God something that doesn't mean anything to you, why should it mean anything to him? Interesting, isn't it? So like, if you give to God and you don't feel it, does He feel it? I'm just throwing the question out. You know when God gives, He feels it. Who does God give for the sins of the world? His only begotten Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God felt it when He gave Jesus. So something to think about. Make sure you feel it when you give to God. Now, David buys this. And if you look in the parallel package, uh, the spot, it's 600 shekels of gold. There was more bought and paid for there. He builds the altar, he offers the sacrifice, the Lord hears the prayers, everything's okay. And then in 1 Chronicles 22 verse 1, David says, this is the house of God. This is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, you think about this, David wanted to build God a house, and God says, no, one who comes from you is going to build this house. And there's even a psalm about David did not sleep until he found the place. Where did he find it? He found it at this time when he is the most humbled before God and on the floor and aware of how little he deserves anything from God that's when he realizes this is where the house of God is supposed to go because my house is to be a house of prayer where God will hear prayer and he's just proven this is the spot is that not amazing this isn't an afterthought or a by the way Here's God humbling all of Israel so that he can bless Israel. And that's why this is like the Book of Job. God intentionally deals with pride because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So, if you've received Jesus, Realize that God is in control of your life. You might be tempted to think the devil is playing with you like a cat plays with a mouse or with a ball of yarn, and you're just the ball of yarn for the devil. (sniffs) What fun for the devil to play with your life and mess you up. But no, God himself is in charge of your life. The second thing to realize is that God is going to work for this most important thing. To humble you. Not to humiliate you, but to humble you. And that is to get the proper perspective in life. Who are you in the presence of God? To think about yourself in relation to God rightly, that is, for the rest of your life, you're going to realize God is greater than I ever gave him credit. And then you'll never be able to answer the question, who am I in relation to God? Well, okay, 5.7 grams of silver, but I'm so glad that I am that 5.7 grams. I am so glad to be redeemed. I am so thankful. And see this, this is the greatest blessing that you could ever have to realize who God is and who you are and to be able to think rightly about this. Because everything else comes out of this. God resists The proud but he gives grace to the humble you know that that's repeated three times in the bible and demonstrated many other times and if god says something three times you got to listen you know if god is thwarting you and not letting you get your way he might be doing you a favor Just think about that aspect. And again, if you're going to be like Jesus, it begins with, not my will, but yours be done. Because that is the ultimate thing that God is doing in your life. He will make you like Jesus. And so you say, okay, maybe I don't know what's going on. Maybe you know better, and I want what you want. Everything you want, and not my will, but yours be done. Here's another way to grow in humility, and that is to notice that everything that that God is doing for you, that's good. See, this is why we do, what did God do right this week? It's really important, because if you think about it, you'll realize God is doing good stuff around you all the time. And the more you're aware of that, the more you realize I am dependent on God. Like, where did this all come from? God gave it. How come I have a brain? God gave it. Why do I have these capabilities? God gave those things. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing, man, he gave me my dust. He gave me my breath. So then why do you boast as though you had not received it? Oh, my goodness. So think about this and take some time. See if you can do five minutes. Thank God for everything. Like, I thank God for my office chair and the plastic thing that it rolls on. And then for the carpet underneath the plastic thing that it rolls on. And the reason for that is it came from God. And the wall of books over here and the wall of books over there. My hay fever spray. Thank you, God. I mean, you could take this and go crazy with it, and just realize, God is supplying everything I need, everything that I am, down to the smallest detail. And all that says, I am utterly and completely dependent upon you. Now, David found it was the first step away from God to not be thankful, to not acknowledge that good thing, that good thing, that good thing, and keep walking around going, I am the bomb. I am a good king. Or it's the first step towards God to say, thank you, God. Thank you for forgiving. Thank you for taking away my sin. Thank you that I'm not dead. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You see that? That is the first step toward God. And again, that's why we do that in this service. It might be a little awkward, but again, when you hear about the good things that God's doing, doesn't it do something for you? And it makes you think, wow. That's what you're supposed to think. He is blessing us. And we want to be aware of it and not take it for granted. Say, you know, it's a busted universe. The NHS isn't working right. Everything's... We are, of all people, most blessed. So, if you want God to bless you, then ask him to make you like Jesus and humble you greatly. You think, I don't know, do I want him to humble me? Could that hurt? But see, every other blessing comes out of that. Everything and without humility, there's no blessing. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a good Father. You're not trying to be a Father. From all eternity, you are Father. And you know what we need? and you give it, you say don't despise your chastening. Don't faint under it because you discipline us because you love us. And that's what we regard your discipline as. You love us. You're going to let the whole world go out of control, but you're not going to do that with us. You're going to bust us. And we're so glad for that. Thank you that we can't get away with anything. Because you're going to make us like Jesus, and we thank you for that. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue working in us And then we do ask you to bless us greatly with your presence in our families, at our businesses. Bless us with your presence because you're with us. Thank you for forgiving us our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.